school. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had brought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was in all that he had in the house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused. And he said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept anything back from me except yourself, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand, and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand, and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household, and said to them, See! He has, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home, and she told him the same story, saying, the Hebrew servant whom you have brought amongst us came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled and Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was kept, he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything. That was in Joseph's charge, because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. This is the word of God.
Let me uh, open in a word of prayer. So why don't you just join me? Father, we, uh, as always, we, we desperately need to hear you speak. Uh, Lord, please, will you open our hearts to the truth that it, you would like to impart to us this evening in the power of your spirit uh, through the life of Joseph. Uh, we praise you that this story has been recorded and preserved over thousands of years and that it is living and active uh, in the power of your spirit this evening for us. So please will you speak, Lord, and please will you uh, grant that we would leave here changed people for Christ's sake. And it's only in him and through him that we ask these things. Amen. The force be with you. You know that phrase, or am I, am I just showing my age? You know that phrase? Normally makes us uh, think of a man in a black helmet who has breathing problems. What we don't normally think about is that it implies a specific view of history. In Star Wars, history is the outcome of a tension between opposing forces. So light and dark, yin and yang, uh, evil and good, opposing forces. The empire and who, who's, who's the other side of that equation? There we go, something like that. Opposing forces produces history. The force is the philosophy of history in Star Wars. Now actually, we all have a philosophy of history. We don't talk about it, we're probably not even conscious of it, but it's there. How exactly does history unfold? What is it that guides the events of your life? Your life. You do actually have a view on these things, even if it's concealed. Let me show you. Do you ever talk about how lucky you were to get a certain parking spot, perhaps a certain job? When someone asks you how you met your partner, uh, was it fate that brought you together? Destiny? When you get sick, don't you just for a moment think that your ancestors might have had something to do with it? Or maybe if it's not you, perhaps you know people in your family who think that way. Maybe you're just like Henry Ford. You think history is just one damn thing after another. It started with an explosion. It ends when the fire burns out. Or maybe you quite like the poem Invictus because it gives a more optimistic view. Let me read just a few stanzas. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. So there's chance, there's fate, there's circumstance. None of them can conquer my soul. That's the modern view of history. We make our own. We make our own history. There might be chance, fate, circumstance, but the human will is the thing that drives history on. Human progress is the guiding force of history on the modern view. Maybe you don't like any of these options and you prefer a more Christian approach. You look for signs from God. 
God guides you here and there by opening and closing doors, by communicating with you through your circumstances that are obviously signs on which way to go. That's how your history unfolds, signs from God. So there are lots of options, chance, fate, your ancestors, human progress, signs from God. Lots of options. We all pick one. We all do it, whether we do it consciously or subconsciously. We use these tools to help us interpret what's going on around us, especially in times of suffering. Especially in times of suffering. That's when we really grasp for something, anything, to help us make sense of what's going on around us. To help us make sense of what seems to otherwise be meaningless pain. Last week we looked at providence over sin. This week we are looking at providence over circumstance and suffering. And I think you're going to see that the two are very closely related. Our passage, the one that H read for us, is going to discredit all the options that our culture offers us for understanding our circumstance and suffering, and it's going to show us a better way. So what I'm saying is that this passage, Genesis 39, is going to show you the meaning of history and your place in it. That is a big, hairy, audacious claim. Let's test it. Genesis 39 verse 1. Again, I'm thrilled that you have your Bibles open. We need them open. We're going to do a lot of work. 39 verse 1. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. You remember Joseph is in slavery. He's been sold by his brothers who would have left him for dead in a hole in the desert if it weren't for the profit motive. Then the traders take him out of the land of his fathers, out of the land of blessing, out of the land of God's promise, into Egypt, and they sell him like an animal for a second time. And I don't know if you knew this, but all of this is happening before his 20th birthday. How would you interpret these events? If Joseph believed in chance or fate or the power of his ancestors, then he would arrive at the same interpretation. He's a victim. Either he's a victim of random chemistry, some iron law in a mechanical universe, or of a spiteful ancestor. Whatever the case, he's a victim. And if God was communicating through his circumstances, showing Joseph signs, what exactly is God saying at this point? We look at his circumstances, we have to conclude God is saying, Joseph, I don't love you. I want nothing to do with you. Those are the options. None of them will do. Verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered. And he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and entrusted to his care everything he owned. Everything he owned. 
From the time he put him in charge of his household and all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in, in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. We read those striking words that we thought about last week. The Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. Now certainly there's been an uptick in his fortunes in his immediate uh, circumstances, but the basic circumstances haven't changed. He's still a slave. He's still in Egypt. And yet, the Lord is with him. To make this point clear, the writer of Genesis mentions the Lord five times in just four verses. In the whole of, <clears throat> excuse me, in the whole of Genesis 37 to 50, the Lord is mentioned by his personal name only 12 times. I mean, that makes sense because these chapters are teaching us about providence. And so the Lord stays hidden even though he, he's active throughout those chapters. Remember, that's the nature of providence. But five out of 12 mentions right here in these four verses, when? When Joseph is at his lowest point. The Lord didn't take him out of the suffering. The Lord was with him in the suffering. Closest to him when he is suffering the most. The Lord's presence with Joseph and the way he blesses the house of his Egyptian master immediately remind us of his promise to Abraham. I will bless you and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. It also reminds us of the Lord's promise to Jacob. I am with you. I am with you wherever you go. This is the point. Joseph's situation is not the product of chance or fate or society or his own will. It's very clear from these verses that despite all appearances, God is working out his plans to bless his people and to bless the world through his people. That's the providence of God. Now, before we move on, notice exactly how God blesses the household of the Egyptian. Verse 3, the Lord caused all that Joseph did to succeed in his hands. That's how providence works. Remember, we spoke about it last week. God works through secondary means. God works through Israel to bless the nations. God works through Joseph to bless his Egyptian master. Last week, we said that this is called concurrence. God is working, and Joseph is working concurrently. God is working to bless through the work of Joseph. Back to the story. God is with Joseph in his suffering and is turning that suffering to blessing. It seems that things are looking up for him. Until we read this ominous sentence, end of verse 6. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Cue that uh, dangerous music. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> because we know what's coming next. 
After a time, verse 7, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. In this verse, we're hearing strong echoes of Eve in the garden. She sees what is pleasing to, to the eye. It is forbidden, but she desires it. She desires it. Unlike Adam, Joseph is not so easily swayed. Verse 8. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. His master trusts him implicitly. Now, that could actually be an incentive for Joseph to go with her, because his master is not going to suspect a thing, and he has free reign of the house. But Joseph sees it very differently, verse 9. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept anything back from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her, or to be with her. Again, we're hearing echoes of the garden where Adam could eat from any tree, but this one. Not this one. Any tree, but not this one. Nothing is withheld from Joseph except this one thing. Isn't it interesting? Joseph understands that this sin would be a great wickedness against his master. And it would be. But ultimately, all sin is sin against God. The God who has entrusted us with the gift of life itself. And so even though she's relentless, he will not listen to her. Literally, he would not obey her. So his obedience to God had a cost. He is defying the mistress of the house, his employer, his master's wife. That is not easy. It's not easy to speak the truth to power. But Joseph's attitude in the words of the apostles is this. Judge for yourself whether it is right to obey man or to obey God. For Joseph, it's obvious. His obedience would come at a cost. Again, verse 11 has that dark and ominous ring to it. But one day, he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house were there. She ambushes him. He flees. Why? Why does he flee? Do you think about that? I mean, he's a strong young man. There's no way she could overpower him. Why does he flee? What's he running from? Temptation. He's not running from her. He's running from himself. He's doing what Paul tells Timothy to do when faced with evil desires. Run. It's good advice for us. He leaves his garment. She uses it as evidence against him. In verse 14, we have another echo of the garden as the blame is shifted first to Potiphar, then to Joseph. And the victim, sorry, the perpetrator, now becomes the victim. She tries to stir xenophobia amongst the local Egyptian slaves who already have enough reasons to be jealous of the Hebrew. 
she twists the story to accuse him of premeditation. Subtle twist in the words. This is how deception works, right? Instead of, he left his garment in my hand, which of course would have implicated her, her story is, he left his garment beside me. In other words, he was busy undressing with the intent of rape. And he only ran when she raised her voice. She hangs on to the incriminating evidence. The garment is mentioned again to remind us this is the second time Joseph has been stripped of his favored status. You remember last week? His brothers did it. Now Potiphar's wife is doing it. It's the second time a garment has been used to shame the innocent and justify the guilty. So Potiphar's wife gets her way. She manipulates her husband to the point where, verse 20, Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. Let's just take some time to reflect on what's happened here. Look at the effects of sin. Here was a household, prosperous, thriving, flourishing, blessed, What are you left with? A sick marriage, a leadership vacuum, an atmosphere thick with distrust. All because she liked the look of him. She wanted him for herself. Sin is so destructive. Sin destroys shalom, wholeness, harmony, destroys it. We need to remember that the next time temptation comes our way. Because sin just doesn't give you what it promises on the label. It is rat poison wrapped up as lint chocolate. I mean, what could be more private than the inner room in the main house with no one around? Who could possibly get hurt? My friends... Sin has consequences we just can't see at the time. Your cost-benefit analysis at the time of temptation is going to fail. Number one, you can't see all the consequences. Number two, you don't want to. It's part of the devil's lie. Sin has destroyed this household. And it will destroy yours. Let's spare a thought for Joseph. He's been stripped naked, thrown into a hole, passed off as dead, sold into slavery, betrayed by his master's wife, rejected by his master, thrown into a hole for a second time before he's 20. How does he make sense of it all? How should we understand the course of these events? If it's chance or fate... He can only despair because he is at the mercy of random, cold, impersonal forces. He has no escape. If at the other end, the other extreme of the spectrum, he is the captain of his soul, well, it looks like he's run the ship onto the rocks. If he has to read the signs, all the signs are saying the same thing. God has abandoned you. God has forsaken you. God wants nothing to do with you. And yet, that is not what verse 21 says. Verse 21 says the opposite. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him 
steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Not only was the Lord with Joseph, he was with him in covenant love. The word is the word used for God's covenant commitment to Abraham. It's the word that captures God's relentless determination to be with his people and to bless them. That's what that word means. It's the word that keeps showing up time and time again as we read through the Bible, the unfolding history of Israel. We see that word covenant love again and again. The history of Israel is really the history of their determination not to be loved, not to be with God, not to be blessed by him, not to be his people. So on the one hand, you have the God of covenant love, and on the other hand, you have a people who refuse to be loved. Where does the story of Joseph end? Where does the story of Israel end? Where does your story end? Please turn with me to uh, the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 1. If you get there, why don't you just, and you have a pew Bible, a church Bible, why don't you just call out the page number so we can help everybody? Say again, sorry? 976, thank you. 976. Page 976. Ephesians 1, reading from verse 3. Where does history end? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In love, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, providence language. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, providence language, which he has set forth in Christ as a plan, providence, for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Did you see there that it all ends in Christ? That's where it ends. In him we have every blessing. The source of those blessings is covenant love. Verse 5. In love he predestined us to be his sons and daughters. How? Through the cross of Christ. Verse 7. In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses. The cross deals with our determination not to be close to God, not to be his people, not to be blessed by him. And here's the clincher. You want to know what God is doing with history? Do you want to know? The history of the world, the history of Israel, your history. Here it is, the meaning of history. Are you ready for it? Verse 10. God's plan for the fullness of time is this, to put all things under one head, to unite all things under one head, and that head is Christ. We are moving toward, all of history is moving toward, the absolute, open, uncontested rule of King Jesus. That's where it's all going. And if we stop to meditate on that for just a moment, we realize that changes everything. It changes everything. 
Providence changes everything. We know the end. And the end is the absolute uncontested sovereignty of King Jesus. That helps us to make sense of what's happening now. And it helps us in at least these four ways. I'm hoping you're going to come up with more. Let's talk about it over supper. But at least these four ways. We don't have to read signs. We don't have to doubt God's love. We are not victims. And our suffering is not in vain. We don't have to read signs. We don't have to doubt God's love. We are not victims. And our suffering is not in vain. First, the signs. You don't have to read signs to work out God's plan for your life because he has already told you plainly. You are blessed with every spiritual blessing and you are headed for the consummated kingdom of Christ. You don't have to try and puzzle out God's will from your circumstances because that's not how he communicates. In fact, providence is a lot like Hebrew. You can only read it backwards. It's only when you look back that you can see the hand of God. And even then, we don't read it with perfect accuracy. We mustn't try and read providence in the heat of the moment or looking into the future. In fact, God hates future casting because the future belongs to him. You can read about that in Deuteronomy. And you know what happens when we try and read God's will off of our circumstances? Do you know what happens? I'm sure you can guess. We've all done it at one point or another. We read our own desires and fears and ambitions and hopes into our circumstances. Instead of reading God's will out, we read our will in. So let me give you an example. I know of two people who were offered jobs overseas, and in both cases, um, they shared with me, uh, it meant leaving family and church behind, and in both cases, their consciences were pricking them. They felt it was the wrong decision, but they really wanted the job. And then there were the signs. In one case, the company phoned twice which was a sign that it was God's will. In another case, a local company withdrew the job offer, which, of course, was a sign that this was God's will. Do you see how this works? We read our desires into the text of our circumstances, and sim salabim, we have a divine rubber stamp for our ambitions and our desires and our preferences. We don't have to read the signs. And we shouldn't. We shouldn't read the signs. Rather, when we're making decisions, we pray for wisdom. We pray for God-given wisdom. We seek the counsel of wise and godly brothers and sisters in Christ. Then we make a decision. And we trust in God's providence. Your decision cannot undermine God's purposes. Eternity ends in the uncontested sovereign rule of King Jesus, whether you take the job or not, right? We don't have to read the signs. Second, we don't have to doubt God's love. 
This is very much related to reading signs. The graffiti scribbled all over the walls of Joseph's life in Genesis 39 is God hates you. God hates you. But the truth recorded for us in verse 21 is that the Lord was with Joseph and loved him with an unrelenting covenant love. The Lord was determined to bless Joseph. And he was with him. Our material circumstances are notoriously bad indicators for God's love. We all know people who are living in lavish lives of comfort and luxury, but they're miserable and they're a million miles from God. And we all know people who are struggling to make ends meet, who are suffering with their, with health afflictions, and yet they live with joyful contentment because they have Christ. Because they know that God is with them. We can't read God's commitment to us off of our bank statements or off of our hospital bills. We can't read God's commitment to us off any of our circumstances. There's a much better way. Third, third difference providence makes. You and I are not victims. We're not victims. You are not a victim of randomness, the iron law of cause and effect, an angry ancestor, society, you name it. We know that all of history is heading for the absolute, uncontested, eternal reign of King Jesus. We can interpret our lives and the world around us in light of that fixed reality. That is our true north. Instead of being the helpless victim of chance or fate or whatever, instead of going to the other extreme and thinking we're the master of our own universe, instead of reading our will into our circumstances and then calling it God's will, we can actively, deliberately align the meaning and purpose of our lives with God's meaning and purpose for all life. If that's where all of history is headed... Well, let's head in the same direction. Let's swim with the tide. Jesus is going to reign forever. And that means, well, it means, it means everything. But it means that you can take gospel risks with your money now, for instance. Even if your financial advisor thinks it's a bad idea. But you can tell him, but Jesus is going to reign forever means that you can flee from that flirtatious friendship at the office or at campus. You can flee from it because it, as good as that feels in the moment, there are better things in store for you. It means that estranged brother or sister or aunt, that one you haven't spoken to in months, maybe years, you can call them up and you can tell them you love them. Why? Well, because Jesus is going to reign forever. You can call them even if they're not worthy of your love. You can love them even if they're not worthy of your love. Because Jesus is going to reign forever. And that means you and I are not victims. We are free to defy our circumstances and to live for him. Right now. 
Finally, providence means that we don't suffer in vain. Now, we, I said this last week, we tend to read Genesis romantically. We tend to read most Bible stories romantically, as if Joseph is some sort of superhuman who just skipped from crisis to crisis with a big smile on his face. It's not so. I mean, he suffered deeply. There's some clues and some hints in the text that show us he suffered deeply. We mentioned it last week. He begged with his own brothers to take him out of that hole, but they wouldn't listen. In fact, the trauma of those years, those slavery years, was so intense, he actually named his first two sons after that trauma. And yet it was when his suffering was most intense that God was closest to him. And that is God's promise to us. That is God's promise to us. Turn to Romans chapter 8. Verse 28. If you have a page, you can shout it for us. 944. Verse we know very well. Verse we love, and rightfully so. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. Now, this doesn't mean what we often take it to mean. In fact, it means something infinitely better doesn't mean that because I do God the favor of loving him, I'm going to get the job. My career is going to fly. Never going to get sick. doesn't mean that. First of all, this verse refers to those called according to God's purpose, not to mine or yours. And what is God's purpose? To put all things under Christ. God works all things in our lives for that purpose and for our good. And the two are the same. It is to our supreme good that we submit to the Lordship of Christ. That is where the good life is. There is no greater blessing than that. God works all things to that end. All things. Now, what does Paul have in mind specifically when he says all things? Well, he tells us in the same chapter, and all things are not... Jobs, cars, houses, careers. Not one of those things is listed there. In fact, all things include trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, the present, the future, anything. And then he goes on to say, none of these things can separate you from the love of God in Christ. Not one of them. Do you see what the promise is? The promise is not that you will never suffer. That is not the promise. The promise is that when you suffer, God will be with you. Working that suffering out for your good and for his purpose, and the two are one. And we see that in the story of Joseph. Haven't we seen that in the story of Joseph? We see it most clearly in Jesus at the cross. Now, there are many in this room, I'm well aware, for whom suffering is not a hypothetical at the moment. You are in the throes of deep, intense, profound pain. And you say to me, how can anything good come from this? I take that question very seriously. 
Without having a glib or a definitive answer, let me venture just to say a few things. Just a few things. The nature of providence means that God's immediate purpose is hidden from us. We just don't know exactly what he is doing in the moment. We don't know. But the Bible does mention a number of ways in which he turns suffering to good. So let me give you a few examples. He uses suffering to form our characters and to make us more like Christ. And we've all met people who have Christian people, beloved brothers and sisters, who have suffered deeply. They've suffered deeply in life. And they just have that godly wisdom, that maturity, that humility. God has used suffering to make them more like Christ. God also uses suffering to refine our faith and to deepen our trust in him. You can chat to someone on our pastoral team here at church. Martha Panganai. Panganai is here somewhere. He was. Uh, Eddie. Others. Rafa. I have a few experiences of this myself. You go to someone's bedside to encourage them. And they end up encouraging you. God has used this suffering to strip away all the props. The bank account. The stellar career. The family. And so this person who is staring death in the face is trusting in Christ and in Christ alone. There's nothing else left. They are free to trust fully in Christ. God uses suffering to deepen our trust in him. Finally, God also uses our suffering so that we might be a comfort to those who suffer. We have people in the church family who have been through the most heinous, ugly, awful divorces. And if at the time you asked them if anything good is going to come from this, they probably would have broken down into tears. But now, through the providential guiding and healing hand of God in Christ, they are the ones leading divorce care or grief share. We heard about it earlier. This sort of thing happens all the time. God comforts us in our suffering so that in time, he can use us to be a comfort to others. So God uses suffering to make us more like Christ, to deepen our trust in him, and to prepare us to comfort others. Providence means that our suffering is never in vain. It's never in vain. If you're suffering right now, what I've just said might not be very compelling for you, and I I pray that in the grace of God it becomes clear with time. Because as we said earlier, providence can only be read backwards. But right now I need to give you hope. I need to give you hope for right now. Right now, if you are in the throes of deep suffering and you want to be sure that God turns suffering to good, fix your eyes on that cross. Fix your eyes on that cross. At that cross, God turns the deepest suffering ever endured by mankind into mankind's greatest triumph. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful to you that we are not the victims of chance or fate or a spiteful ancestor. 
We thank you that you love us, that you are determined to bless us, and that you are guiding all of history towards the absolute, uncontested, open rule of King Jesus. Thank you that you have your hand on our stories, on every detail of our stories, that you care about every detail of our lives. Thank you that our lives have purpose. Thank you that even our suffering is not in vain. We thank you for Jesus. Amen.